morning, church. How are we this morning? Woo! I'm excited. Uh, we got to baptize six of our young people this week, and man, as a youth pastor at this church, that's like one of the most exciting things you could possibly do, seeing young people's lives change. Can I get an amen to that? Good. Right. I want us to be on the same page. I want us to be on the same level this morning. Right, so we are getting to continue on in the Prodigal Church series, which is a series going through 1 Corinthians, and this morning we land on the beautiful, magnificent, fantastic passage of 1 Corinthians 13, the one that everyone is real excited about. So good. But before we get into that, I'm going to tell us a little bit of a story. This Wednesday on the 11th of November is my and my wife's three-year wedding anniversary. yoo Right, so uh, you're probably looking at me, and you're going, wow, he must know everything now. Man, so if you guys need any advice, if you need, um, you know, some counseling, or maybe, you know, you just want to come and just glean from my wisdom, that's absolutely all right. We can tee it up after the service. <laughs> I was just being silly. Um, there's a guy in this church that I really look up to. His name's John Douglas, and he's married to a, a lady named Dorothy, and they have been married yesterday for 56 years. Does that not blow your mind? 56 years. Crazy stuff, crazy stuff. Well, I, I think that is a huge achievement, and I think that's something worth honoring, especially in the church today. That's incredible, 56 years. But anyway, so 11th of November, um, must have been a Saturday or Friday. I can't remember now. It was three years ago, guys. And anyway, so we got married. That was a great day. And then obviously after you get married, you normally go on a bit of a honeymoon. So but that's what Bailey and I did. We took off over to Bali. And um, when we went over to Bali, we had this like camera set up. And it was great. We had about like this Canon camera and we had about maybe three or four lenses. And so throughout this trip, we were traveling around to different parts of the island on the island of Bali. And we're going to waterfalls and we're looking at different like lakes and some monkeys and all this kind of stuff. And everywhere we'd go, I'd crack this uh, camera case open and I'd be like, oh, what's the best lens to use today? So you know, maybe I need this long lens, you know, I need to get some angles or maybe I need to jump in and get this macro lens out, maybe just a 50 mil lens because this has got a little bit uh, better depth perspective going on in here and so everywhere we'd go Bailey would be posing with for something and I'd be like oh just wait and need to swap the lens over and then she started to get really really angry with me because I was just taking far too long this is one of the you know first fights we had as a married couple it was you know memorable but it's really really important because for me <laughs> for me I wanted to get the right shot I wanted to adjust the lenses so that I could get the thing in focus um, and take the right picture. And so this morning as we dive into 1 Corinthians 13, I believe this is what God wants to do in our hearts and with our minds this morning. You see, I think for a lot of us with 1 Corinthians 13, we bring some presuppositions, we bring some ideas to the text that aren't not there, but they aren't the main thing that is there. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, I want us to readjust our lenses so that we can see clearly what Paul is trying to articulate to us. Is that okay? Brilliant. All right. So where does this fit into the wider story of what we're talking about? Well, Craig and Rob beautifully shared over the last few weeks, chapter 12. Now, if you remember in chapter, the start of chapter 12, Paul is sharing about the spiritual gifts and he says what they are, an incomplete list, but more importantly, he says who they are from, that they are given by one spirit to the church for the building up of the saints. Right, and then um, sorry, Craig continued last week by saying, "And right, we don't all have the same gifts. Not everyone is an eye. Not everyone is an ear. You know, not everyone is the brain. <laughs> but we all have our place. And when we all come together, we make up this beautiful thing called the body of Christ. And so that's chapter twelve. 
And now we're into chapter 13 today, and then chapter 14 is about the working out of those gifts in the church in Corinth and today. But the important thing to recognize is that chapter tw- uh, chapters 12 and 14 would be incomplete. They wouldn't make sense unless the chapter that we look at today, if, if it wasn't there, rather. And so chapter 13 is the key to unlock chapters 12 and 14. It's a guide to operating in spiritual gifts, but it's also a way to navigate the conflicts that were happening in the church in Corinth. And let's just be honest, there were many, many, many conflicts. And so let's look at this first lens that I believe Paul wants us to address before we even look at the text today. And that's this, it's the lens of maturity. It's this lens of maturity. Paul is dealing with a church that is horrendously immature. And it's encouraging because in chapter one, he addresses them as Christians. He addresses them as saints. But he's still saying, come on, guys, we've got to do better than this. We've got to continue to grow up and grow into the people that God is calling us to be. And in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, he says this, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put childish things aside. Now, we're going to get into the depths of this verse in a little bit. But at first glance, this is a call for the church in Corinth to step into the maturity that God has given them. It's a call to grow up and grow into the things of God. The Bible talks about this idea of growing into maturity all over the place. Another place is in Hebrews 5 verse 12. It says this, In fact, by this time, you ought to be teachers. Oh, sorry. In fact, though by this time, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk is still an infant and is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. This was not the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was immature. And so again, the Bible is calling us to grow up. And this last place that I believe we need just a slight verse to readjust our lenses a little bit is Galatians 6, verse 9 and 10. It says this, Let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good for all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Paul is addressing the church in Ephesus here, but essentially what he's saying is if we can't sort ourselves out in here, what are we inviting people into? What do we have to give to people outside the church if we can't learn to love one another in here? Now, this is to the church in Ephesus, but again, I believe it's for us today. So that's the lens of maturity. God, uh, sorry, Paul is inviting us to grow up and lean into the text that we're going to look at today. And the second lens that I believe Paul wants to adjust our vision with is this, refocus our vision, is this thing called the lens of love. The lens of love. In this chapter, Paul mentions this word love 10 times. But you see, because we all have a different definition of love, we read into that what we want or what we think. So I just want to do a little bit of unpacking of that before we jump into the text or else we're going to screw it up. All right, so the word love in this text is this word agape. Now, for some of you guys, that might be a really common word for you. Maybe if you're newer Christians, that's the first time you've heard it. It's one word for love in the Bible. It's a Greek word. And what that means, by definition, is a warm warm regard and an interest in others. A warm regard and interest in others. 
So automatically that takes away any sort of romantic aspect uh, to the text. It takes away anything like that from the text, and it's talking about actually the way that we interact with one another as the church, as saints, as believers. In 1 John 4 verse 16, I don't have these texts on the screen, but just go with me for a second. In 1 John 4, John assures us, he's convinced that God, by definition in his character and his nature, is love. It's who he is. He cannot exist apart from it. It is who he is completely. And in Colossians 1 verse 15, we learn that Jesus is the image of this invisible God. So if we're really wanting to create a broad and diverse definition of love, we need, as the church today, to look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. How did he live? How did he interact with people? What did he do? I think that's a great way to do it. In uh, Hebrews 12, it says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. You know, there are moments where Jesus is incredibly kind and he invites these children to come and sit on his lap, but then there's times where he goes into a temple and like flips some tables. You know, both done in the name of love. There's going to be times, uh, right now we're in a season where Jesus is inviting people in through the beautiful uh, announcement of the gospel. But there's going to be a time where Jesus has to say, you know what, actually depart from me, I never knew you. And all of this, by definition, is love, because Jesus is love. All done in the name of love. So the goal for us today is to learn from these lenses, to look at the text correctly, and to grow up and grow into the church that God is calling us to be. Is that okay? Sweet. We're on the same page. Legit. Um, All right. So I'm just going to pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this church. God, thank you so much for the people in it. Lord, as we open your word this morning and we look at 1 Corinthians 13, would you change our hearts? Lord, make us more like you. Lord, turn us into the people that you want us to be. Lord, that we would show your goodness and your glory to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so at the end, at the end, at the end of chapter 12, Paul says this profound statement. He says, let me show you a more excellent way. Let me show you a more excellent way way, a still more excellent way. And I think this implies a lot. I think this means that the church in Corinth was really trying to have a go at trying to fix themselves. You know, they were really interested and curious about fixing it, but they really just didn't know where to start or what to do. And at the end of chapter 12, he says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And then he dives into the text. And so that's exactly what I'm going to do today. So verse uh, chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and have all faith as so to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I love what Paul is doing here. He's escalating each example as he goes along. The first example he gives us is about tongues. But if we interpret that word, it just means other languages. And so what he's saying in this text is every time something is spoken to the church collectively and individually, I would suggest, it needs to be done with love. So if we're speaking words, we shouldn't just rattle on and make ourselves look more intelligent than what we are. We shouldn't just come um, with a wise word or, or just saying things to... Um, try and dominate other people or or be over other people, but everything we do needs to come from this place of building up one another. 
And so he's saying, but if you're not doing this, and, and you could totally put speaking in tongues into this as well. If people don't understand what you're saying, and they're not encouraged or edified by what you're saying, he's saying you're just a clinging gong or a crashing cymbal. It just means nothing. It's not done with love. Okay, so I feel like it's sweet. Okay, so we can kind of get that one. That one's quite simple. It's down to earth. So then he jumps into the next one, the next level up. If I had prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I had faith so to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. Paul says in chapter 12 to, uh, to aspire to have the higher gifts, and he's talking about the prophetic nature. He's talking about words of knowledge. He's talking about being able to speak out and encourage the church. He's saying, again, if you're doing this for self-righteousness or self-surface, he says you're doing it without love, and it actually just means nothing. You're not helping anyone. You're not even helping yourself. So he escalates it. He takes it to another level, and then he does that again. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, uh, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I love this one because it takes it to this almost unrealistic degree. Jesus says in the Gospels, there's no greater love than this for one to lay down his life for his friends. But Paul was making a slight little addition to that and saying, but if you do it without love, if you're willing to sacrifice your own self for those around you, but your intentions aren't right, even in that, you're wasting people's time. Really what he's getting to, the crux of the matter is the position of our hearts. Where are our hearts before the Lord and where are our hearts before one another in the church today? That's really what Paul is getting at here. And so there's many ways that we can learn from Scripture about how to decode or decipher where our hearts are at. But this morning, I just want to go down one vein of that and look at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Encourage one another as long as it's called today so that your hearts aren't hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another as long as it's called today so that your hearts aren't hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, what I love this is that this verse has movement, especially for us as the church today, because what it implies is it's very difficult to test the posture of our hearts by ourselves. We actually need one another. We cannot do this journey by ourselves. Encourage one another every year. Encourage one another once a month. Encourage one another once a week. No, 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 daily we need to be speaking into one another's lives and encouraging our hearts, each other's hearts. I think in New Zealand, this becomes increasingly difficult uh, because we feel, I don't know if it's a sense of entitlement, but we want people to come and serve us. You know, we'll be going through something hard or something we'll be, we'll be struggling with and we'll be waiting for people to come and, oh man, you know, are you okay? Are you doing all right? Are things okay? But the reality is that even in my experience, it just very rarely happens. People often don't reach out. What Paul is challenging us here in this first section of 1 Corinthians is to step out and pioneer a new way of love, a way that serves the body of Christ, a way that speaks directly into one another's lives daily. Now, that's a big challenge, and I can admit that, but it's still it's the call of Scripture. I know this young guy in the youth group, and, man, he has gone through some really rough stuff, eh? Um, his parents um, are struggling. His siblings are really, really disjointed. But I can say one thing about this young guy. This young guy loves Jesus. This guy is passionate about Jesus. And I was catching up with him the other day, and he was saying to me, you know, Michael, I feel like someone needs to come and fix this relationship. 
you know, I don't know if it's my parents that need to just step out and begin this uh, reconciliation work within our family. I don't know if it's an older brother of mine that I'm waiting for to come and speak to me. Um, I don't really know what to do. And I was listening to this and I was, you know, just hearing, I guess, this this plea or this deep desire for for reconciliation in his family. And, you know, I think the wisest thing and, and, and the thing that Paul is inviting us into and the writer of Hebrews is actually he's going to be the one that begins this reconciliation work in his family. You know, even as a younger sibling, even though it feels like other people should come and serve him, he's going to step out in obedience and he's going to begin asking his older siblings, you know, how are you doing? You know, what's going on in your life? You know, mum and dad, what can we do? How are you really doing? What's going on? How do we begin to recenter our life around Jesus, our family life around Jesus? Is that particularly fair? And potentially not. But I think this is what Paul is inviting us into in the church. I think this is the way of love, that when we all individually step out and begin to serve the body of Christ together, we ourselves will be served. I think that's a beautiful promise of love. All right, we'll jump into this next little section. eh? Section two, the nature of love, reads like this. Love is patient and love is kind. Love uh, is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, it's really important that we read this correctly. First and foremost, this is about the nature and character of God. This is who our God is. We want to know who the God is that we worship. We just got a brilliant description of who he is. Secondly, in that, that is the way that Jesus Christ interacts with us, his people. That Jesus is patient with us. He is kind to us. He is not envious or boastful or arrogant. He is not rude. He is not irritable or resentful toward us. That's beautiful. Man, we could probably just finish right there. That's a very profound thing. Uh, Matthew 2, uh, sorry, 22 says this, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if we take this way that God is, and then the way that Jesus pursues us and loves us, the challenge from Jesus is now to push that onto other people around us, right? We can, we can see this flow-on effect. I was reading some C.S. Lewis when I was preparing for the sermon, and C.S. Lewis dropped this profound bomb on me, and I was just absolutely loving it. He goes, but how do we love people that we don't like? I was like, yeah, man, I get that. How do we love people that we don't like? This is a legitimate, legitimate issue. All right, so I'm going to read this quote from C.S. Lewis because I think he throws it down brilliantly. You are told to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do you love yourself? When I look into my own mind, I find that I do not love myself by thinking myself a dear old chap and having affectionate feelings. I do not think that I love myself because I'm particularly good but just because I am myself and quite apart from my character. I might detest something that I've done. Nevertheless, I do not cease to love myself. In other words, the definite distinction that Christians make between hating sin and loving a sinner is one that I have been making, uh, sorry, that you have been making in your own case since you were born. You dislike what you have done, but you do not cease to love yourself. Love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. 
He's ruling to us and he's letting us know there is a legitimate category to find people difficult. Love is not this emotional thing that you have to stir up to each and every single person. I find this quite difficult, especially in a church outside. The reality is there are people's personalities that are simply just going to clash. But what C.S. Lewis is saying, and, and let me suggest that what Paul is saying through this text, uh, text is that loving someone in the way that Jesus loves us is always putting their personal good first. You can struggle with someone, you cannot get along necessarily very well, but always putting their good first. This is what Jesus does for us. C.S. Lewis goes on to say in Mere Christianity that the more that we uh, do unkind things to people that we don't like, the more we'll find ourselves hating them. But the more that we show loving actions to people that we struggle with is the more that we'll find ourselves loving them in return. And so this becomes a discipline in the life of a Christian to pursue love. Paul is inviting us into the way of Jesus and he's giving us firm definitions of what this looks like what, uh, and what love is to a church in Corinth that had no clue. And I love that he gives us these firm definitions. And so in the last section of the text, and this is the one that gets most complicated, it's about the enduring nature of love and the transitory nature of the gifts. It reads like this. Verse 8, love never ends, but for prophecies they will come to an end, and for tongues they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we only know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I only know in part, and then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. So what's Paul trying to say here? What he's saying is there's going to come a time where the spiritual gifts that God has gifted the church with will become irrelevant. They won't be needed anymore. And so it's debated about when that time is, but for us here at BBC, when we look at verse 10 and when we ask the question, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. Well, what is this complete? We believe that's the coming back of Jesus Christ in the day of glory. And so right now we're in a season where the gifts of the Spirit are fully available and of access to us. Fill the building up of the church. That's what we believe. That's what we affirm. We're all about it. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Right now, we are in this childish phase as the people of God. And what Paul is saying is one day we will progress to adulthood and we won't need those things anymore. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us in a position where we pray for the gifts. We serve one another. We build one another up in the way of love. We press in, we pray, and we pray that they'll be used in love. So why does the way of love matter? Why does Paul even address it? Why does it matter if we get along? Why does it matter if we're built up? I think this is a legitimate question to ask. There's heaps of businesses or corporate institutions or um, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that exist perfectly fine without majoring on love so much. You know, they're successful, they make money, they get the job done. Love isn't a big deal. Why is Paul suggesting that love is such a big deal for us as Christians? 
let me change tact a little bit and jump into the book of Ephesians to finish off. Um, Ephesians 3 verse 10 says this, and man, if you guys want a coffee cup verse, if you want to put a verse in your homes, if you want a t-shirt or, I don't know, bed sheet, you can embroider it on every night before you go to bed. I don't know what you guys do. Um, this is the verse for it. This is like, this is the, this is the scriptures, you know. Uh, Ephesians 3 verse 10 says this, His intent, Jesus Christ, was that now, through the church, through the church, I should have underlined it on the slide, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose that was accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? Essentially, what that means is that since the beginning of time, God has had a plan that through the church, Satan, his demons, and anyone that opposes the name of Jesus Christ would know that the gospel is all satisfying and Jesus is supreme through the church through the way that we love one another, through the way that we serve one another, through the way that we interact with one another. And so we are not to be known by our sweet music. We're not to be known by our preaching. We are not to be known by our sweet coffee that Irene and Derek are preparing out the back. We're to be known as the church for our love for one another and the way that we serve one another, that the church is the thing that is going to show Satan that Jesus is Lord. What a profound and powerful challenge for us as the church in 2020. The existence and flourishing of such a community is the thing that is going to reveal to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ is what it claims to be. That is true and pure and right and saving. And so the way that we're going to finish our service this morning is we're going to sing together because one way that we serve one another in the church is by singing. You see, singing and playing music in a church is not about having a band come and play some sweet songs so we can kind of maybe turn up late and grab a coffee and, you know, skip. It's because when our voices combine together, God is glorified, we are stirred in our heart, and Satan is reminded that Jesus is on the throne. When we sing together, so this morning, that's what we're going to do. So um, music team, if you guys want to take away with that, and then I'll, I'll jump up and close the service. So good, Mike. Why don't you stand and let's sing this song together.
take a seat. I've just gone and hijacked the service. We've got a little bit of time here, so we're going off script, which is um, fun. Hey, Michael, that was a fantastic job you did with that. Let's give him a hand, eh? That was fantastic. Um, what I wanted to do um, is just to acknowledge something that's going on in the life of our church uh, under and over what Michael's just said. I don't know, is Dan around? Is Dan Marshall around somewhere? Where is he? He was here earlier on. Somebody, somebody find him for me, eh? He's not here? There is. Okay, Dan, drinking coffee. Youth pastor, you're sleeping under the stairwell. Okay. Hey, uh, Dan and Mike, you want to come on up? Rob, come on up. Jamie, you're here. Uh, what's going on in our youth group at the moment is remarkable. Um, we've got around about 250 young people turning up here on a Wednesday night, which makes it probably the most craziest outfit in the whole country at the moment, really. And... Um, and these guys here are overseeing a lot of it. There's a few more that aren't here. Anybody else in our youth ministry team just here, the, the key leaders? Yeah, not, not, not today. Um, and so I just really wanted to, in light of what Michael's been saying, in light of the baptisms that we saw today, I just really wanted to take the opportunity to acknowledge what God is doing here in our midst. Uh, that's, that's 250, maybe 350, close to 400 young people who are 
intimately entwined with each other in respect to their spiritual life and their, uh, their care for one another and their social life and all those dynamics that go on. And that is an amazing thing, isn't it? Truly an amazing thing. And so I just wanted to bring to your attention today uh, what it is that this team is working with and through and how it is that they are subject to, in many respects, all the things that Michael was talking about today, the, the sense of love, but the spiritual powers and principalities that they wrestle against in the lives and in through the lives of these young people that they are ministering to. And so I just want to bring that to your attention so that you can go away today and, and pray for them. This is a really, really big responsibility that these folks carry. It's not easy work. And in a world where there's so many differing values now floating around, it's a real minefield to navigate your way with the Word of God in your hand uh, into the community and into the lives and families of these young people. And as you can see, Mike does a great job with that. And so we're really committed as a, young, as a, as a youth ministry to make sure that our young people understand the Scriptures, understand the person of Jesus. It's not just turning up here and, and having, a, having a bunch of fun, even though they do. The other thing I also just want to make mention of is um, uh, Mike's got a health condition that, where he struggles from kidney failure. He's been very open about that, so I'm not dropping him in anything here. And the moment he's going through the process of uh, candidating to get what would be a second kidney transplant for him. So, so let's remember Mike uh, and Bailey in their endeavor to maintain great health and see God's hand in this. And so it's a, um, it's a unique thing that Mike struggles with. But as we can see, you know, through suffering, perfection comes, eh? You know, Mike has been grown up and uh, loves Jesus and loves his word. So um, we get the benefit of that, Mike. So thank you. So um, I'm gonna ask Pastor Rob to pray for this team and then I'm going to pray for the team as well so thanks Rob let's bow together Father we commit this ministry to you we commit these people here and those 50 plus volunteers that uh, give of their time and of themselves of their skills of their gifts every single week to see young people know more about who you are and learn what it means to walk with you. And Lord, as we saw, um, baptisms uh, leading people into faith. Father, we're just so thankful for the commitment of this team, uh, those that you've brought among us. Uh, Lord, for Dan, for Jamie, for Mike, for Sam, for Annalise. Lord, I just pray, Lord, unity. Uh, Lord, a blessing upon them. Lord, that you would raise them up into a place of influence within our country that we might see more and more young people come to know you and walk with you. So I ask every blessing upon them this morning. And Lord, I pray for us, the old people. We, Lord, as the church, we want to be inspired by our young folk. We want to see Christ growing up, fully being fully formed within them. And we want to see them take hold of the responsibilities of the gospel and the love for Jesus that goes hand in hand. And so, Father, on behalf of us all here today, I just want to pray, Lord, that we would be right behind our young people, uh, recognizing that the world they live in is so different to the one we were raised in. And yet, Lord, you're powerful in the midst of them. You are changing lives. You are taking them on a journey that is uh, beyond even our comprehension of what the world will be in the future. But, Lord, we just want to commit to you and your purposes through our young people. And so we ask for your blessing to be upon the team. And may they continue, Lord, to, to be challenged and, and wrestle with whatever they might have in front of them, but be able to know the leading of your spirit 
in and through the midst of this this uh, this life that they live amongst the young people. And so God, may your word to be clear, may your spirit be powerful, and may lives be changed for and in the name of Jesus. And so we commit them to you in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen.